What was your first reaction when you got the news last night? So we were surprised. I mean, as we were surprised, firstly, it didn't happen sooner. Um, you know, usually a work session is going to come just days after the, the May 1st and May 2nd public hearing. And we were hearing, you know, rumors about amendments and things like that. And so everything we'd heard this week was dragging their feet, a uh, number of uh, different things going on. And then all of a sudden, you know, I was home <laughs> late at night watching TV and said, there it is. So uh, I, I was surprised. Uh, you, you have mixed emotions because we've known all along basically what's going to happen in regard to our target is not the Judiciary Committee. That's the part of the process. We know that's going to break along, you know, the uh, part. It's a, sta- it's a stacked committee. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, Matt, Matt Moonen, the House co-chair of the Judiciary Committee, is ma- is married to, or his husband is the chief of staff to Governor Janet Mills, who is the former. Jeremy Kennedy. Uh, the former, uh, what, the political director for Planned Parenthood of New England. Right. So, I mean, we, we know that the, the Democrats have put their, you know, uh, their soldiers on that committee regarding this issue. Uh, but, but it is a, a necessary process. So my thought was after like, you know, catching my breath was, okay, we got a lot of work to do. Let's make sure our allies on that committee get the uh, necessary comments uh, on record. Um, because even though it's not going to change any votes on the committee, let's just make sure that as a recorded process that for uh, to make sure that the people of Maine and the legislators know exactly what 1619 is and what it isn't. The the when this got a hearing on May 1st, I mean, pe- most people who are listening to this podcast uh, already understand that there was record-setting turnout, just massive. Uh, Representative Laurel Libby, who runs uh, Speak Up for Life, uh, who helped you guys, or you worked in partnership to cause to bring make turnout for that event. She printed up all the pro-life testimonies and dropped them on uh, lawmakers' desks yesterday. And the they actually put it in their hands. Oh, put it in a handler. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. even they, even if better. They wouldn't take them. Then they wound up. Did it, did any of them uh, start smoking and catch fire when they touched that? <laughs> uh, some, the majority of legislators that are conscientious, um, whether they like it or not, are professional and you know will take them. Unfortunately, there were some, I think, some rude um, responses to it. But for the most part, people took them. But if if they if we didn't get a chance to see them or if they re- refuse to get it, then the lawmates or they were on their desk. And of course, you've seen them. I mean, they're yeah, they're like three three inches thick. It's a good workout. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 I mean, it's it's impressive what you guys were able to do uh, to turn people out. Because I mean, there there have been um, you know life related, abortion related issues come up in the legislature in the past, and nowhere near the turnout. Yeah, um, we've certainly been thrilled in the past with like three or four hundred people. I remember I was looking when tax funded abortion unfortunately passed a few years ago. So, yeah, and, and I think that probably one of the best decisions I've made as an executive director, and maybe that's uh, maybe not of many great decisions, but um, for 13 years, um, looking back, probably one of the best decisions was this January, February, when I met with our board and had heard that Laurel was looking at taking the infrastructure from their really great political machine uh, that was dealing with the mandates regarding vaccines and to translate that into, uh, you know, preparing advocates and getting ready for and, and being laser focused on LD 1619. I said to our board, there's no sense of reinventing the wheel. We don't care who gets the credit, but let's use our ability to promote what they're doing. Let's give them our staff. Let's give them finances and then whatever logistics we can offer. And so we are thrilled 
to partner with him because I, I, I think it's unprecedented. Uh, you know, I mean, when you get down to it, it's a, uh, Maine's, uh, Maine's a big small town and it's all the same people. You know, yeah. it's, we're all recruiting from the same, li- uh, list of activists. Uh, but th- I guess that you, you know, you mentioned that the, um, the vaccine freedom or, you know, medical freedom issue kind of had this natural overlap with, uh, the, the abortion issue. And I think that there are a number of issues like that that have surfaced in the current legislature, whether it's the, um, transgenderism in schools or the, um, you know, Medicaid related policy. Uh, what are some other issues in addition to the, um, uh, abortion related stuff that the Christian Civic League is, is working on? Yeah. If I, if I could just speak to though the overlap, because I, I think it's interesting. The further you go into extreme and in this situation to the left, uh, on abortion issue, the transgender issue, parental rights, religious freedom and so on. The more, the bigger the common ground is for opposition. Yeah. Mm. And so you look at that, that, where the, uh, the nexus of this with especially speak up for life was the mandate issue. Man, you had, you know, right wing, uh, pro-lifers along to the granola, my body, my choice people that were standing together against taking away the religious and philosophical exemptions. That's the same thing that's, hap- that's happening in this legislative session. Um, we've got polling out that shows that 80% of Mainers want the status quo uh, in regard to abortion laws in this country. Well, Janet Mills, this, Janet Mills did too. This is supposedly, yeah. Um, so that, yeah, and people have a right to change their mind or, or whatever reasons, and I try not to get into people's motives or why they do things. I either agree or disagree. But it, I think in this situation, especially the on-fire uh, controversial extreme bills like the transgender treatment without parental rights, mm-hmm. regardless of, uh, how you feel about that or, or whether you think transgenderism is real or whether it's natural or when you start talking about parents and their children, now the R and D and the left right kind of goes out the door. Same thing with what we see happening in our schools right now, Steve, in regard to, uh, age, uh, inappropriate materials in our libraries or, or, uh, superintendents basically ignoring parental rights. I think that this bill on a very controversial issue, like if we did polling, like do you support reproductive rights in Maine? The, probably the majority of people do if you don't define it. Yeah. But when you swing all the way to the left for something that basically, uh, not basically would allow abortion up to the moment of birth uh, for any reason. And as you saw the star witness, which you have so well put out with Shannon Carr, you know, saying that she justified a late-term abortion, which caused the death of a, a 23, 24-year-old woman, including the baby, because she was a waitress, you know, uh, can we say that? A server, excuse me. Just a, t- just a, a, a horrifying story. Yeah. Something that, that, that something that was going to be condemned to lower middle class the rest of its life, and so they, they terminated. So, yeah. So, yes, yeah, so that is something, Steve, that um, has, I think, allowed for a broader oppositional platform, uh, a, a diverse one as well. I think that's why the Democrats are having trouble right now in their caucus. There are pro-choice people that just say this is too far, or you're not answering my questions that my constituents are asking me. So, you know, the, the, the usual umbrella that we walk under are we talk about parental rights, we talk about religious freedom, we talk about the life issue. Historically, we've also been against, dead against, 
uh, gambling expansion. And there are those issues that are that we're dealing with right now under the umbrella of tribal sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, the Christian Civic League has no problem with sovereignty. And I think we need to keep our treaties and our agreements uh, with Native Americans. My mother's 32 percent uh Native American. So whatever I am, whatever that fraction. More is. than Elizabeth Warren. Or, yeah, you, you beat me to the <laughs> Uh But that, that is not the issue with us. Obviously, fairness and negotiations are part of that. But we, along with moderates and progressives like Angus King and, and, and our governor, agree that uh, a way to fund our state to build our bridges to pave our roads, to build our schools is not by playing uh, our fellow citizens as suckers. So that's that's another issue that we're keeping an eye on. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anyone wants to fix infrastructure with grannies gambling away at the penny slots there. Right. Social yeah, security right. checks, yeah. yeah. Um, so you, you brought up Dr. Carr, uh, and obviously this one's uh, something I'm interested in because I've been reporting at length on her relationship with the Mills administration, uh, the role she played in supporting LD 1619, and her, I guess, legacy in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So I want to play a little bit of audio from uh, when she testified. And as most people listening to this are aware, if you were pro-life, your time eventually got chopped down to about... uh, One minute. Your your testimony was prematurely terminated, Mm -hmm. you might say. Uh, This woman, Dr. Shannon Carr, an OBGYN, handpicked by the Mills administration, she got about 15 minutes to talk. Are you saying that an abortion of a perfectly healthy baby at 36 weeks is acceptable under this bill? And just to pause it quick, that's uh, Representative Rachel Henderson from Rumford, who I, I have to say is probably all-star. one of your all-stars. Yeah, absolutely. I, I didn't say 36 weeks necessarily, uh, but a, a later abortion, uh, yeah, uh, depending upon, again, that consultation with a medical provider, um, their mental health professional, et cetera. I I am not to judge. So if you're not to judge, Steve, that means you just do the deed, I guess, right? That that would be the, my, the indication I would take from that comment. But I think I think Shannon, uh, Doctor Carr, is important for a number of reasons. Uh, the first one is that throughout this entire thing, uh, and and some of these other policy debates you've you've brought up, it's there's a, a consistent theme of trust the science, trust the experts. You must defer. You, you know, you're just a, you're just a, you know, uh, a farmer or you're just an auto mechanic. Like you have no insight into these issues. So trust the science, trust the medical profession. It's what showed up in this debate. And when they say that, this is literally who they're talking about. This is, this is the scientific medical expert that they put up to say, this is the person we need to trust and defer to when it comes to policy. And that's why she spoke for 15 minutes. Yeah. Because she was an OBGYN, she's she is experienced not just at abortion, but at late-term abortion, the very Especially. kind of abortions we're trying to legalize here in the state of Maine. And she's a bad actor. I mean, that's the thing that is maddening about this with our press, um, an aggressive press, no matter where they personally stand on the issue, to not see the relevance that at the heart of 1619 is the question of whether this would allow non-medical what are generally considered non-medically necessary or totally non-medical circumstances in which it could be a, a baby could be terminated in the third trimester. And then to say, well, yes, even if it were to do that, then nobody in Maine is doing that. There aren't doctors that would, would be willing to do that. And yet the very star witness was sued 
uh, for doing that, or at least her, her employee was. Uh, she was she was named in a civil lawsuit. Right. I mean, just to give some background for anyone who hasn't read the story, Dr. Shannon Carr uh, was testified 15 minutes, was in the cabinet room next to Governor Mills the day May 1st or May. When did they do their press conference? It was on the 1st, right? Uh, was the, I'm trying to remember what day it was, but she was front and center. Yeah. No question. Yeah. Uh, Shannon Carr was front and center. She, uh, when Governor Mills, uh, opened up uh, questioning for some handpicked members of the press, they were, had an opportunity to ask her questions. I'm sure many of them didn't even know who she was. Sure. Uh, apart from her introduction, uh, you know, when she was testifying. But in 2017, uh, at the end of January, she authorized a late-term abortion on a 23-year-old uh, half-black, half-indigenous woman named Keisha Atkins. Mm-hmm. Uh, they injected her womb a day later, killing her baby, sent her home, and said, well, you know, come back when we're going to deliver this uh, this dead baby. Uh, unfortunately, she showed up at the clinic. She uh, was feverish, um, obviously unwell, short of breath. And rather than take her to the hospital right away, they tried to do what they could for her for 10 hours at the abortion clinic, which had no ability to act, provide actual health care. Um, they even they gave her a, a puff off an albuterol inhaler to see if that would help. And uh, 10 hours in, they decided that they needed to call the University of New Mexico Hospital, had her transported there. She died on an operating room table. Uh, and she, the family, Keisha Atkins' family, later sued the abortion clinic, University of New Mexico Hospital, named Dr. Shannon Carr, and both the clinic and the hospital settled for, uh, I think, $1.3 million. And because of that, she was r- kind of run out of town. Uh, she had to leave Albuquerque, and she came back to Maine, where she had previous ties. And she works as an abortion care provider in Maine now. And, and by the way, uh, abortion clinics have a history of what you're talking about there, where women have gone in um, with complications, and they don't send them to the hospital. They try to treat it there. And we know why they do that. Well, they don't make money providing health care. No, they don't. And and they're not really prepared to do that, but they do it. And they also want to cover up their mistakes. They want to try to take it there rather than having a record of these complications. And, and so I guess the, the the other thing that I think makes Shannon Carr and the details surrounding uh, what happened in 2017 important for this debate is because then it becomes not just about reproductive freedom, but about uh, the safety of women who are seeking that kind of care, because what we're setting up now, because th- this bill doesn't just it's not just a, a, a time limit or a viability thing. We're also expanding the class of professionals who can perform these very dangerous procedures to include physician assistants and registered nurses. And so I, I don't know what exactly the numbers are, but the class of people who can perform these procedures is multiplying. And w- what we set up is that an advanced registered nurse hired by Planned Parenthood is now the the single authority to authorize a proce- authorize and perform a procedure like this. And on top of that, 1619 takes away the criminal consequence of performing this abortion when your uh, license is lapsed or, you know, that type of thing, which was and presently is a Class C crime, but they've moved it down to a licensure uh, infraction which begs the question, which we cannot get anybody to answer, what happens if someone that doesn't have a license at all performs one of these abortions? And those are the type of legal questions that we believe that should be uh, ferreted out and smoked out in in this process through the public hearing, of course, which the 
the Speaker of the House refused to answer. It called all those questions inflammatory. But really, Steve, you think about it. You now are, are if you have, if you go south, uh, and you have someone performing that abortion that has their licenses lapsed or something like that, or they don't follow the standard of care or something like that, that consequence is no longer a criminal consequence. It would be, uh, the same thing as if you asked me to come over to your house uh, your garage and, you know, do some electrical work for you, just put up a light or something, even though I'm not licensed. Mm-hmm. And then, so I'm going to have to deal with whatever that fine is. I do have a circuit box I need to replace in my house. You should by the call way. someone other than <laughs> me. By, by other um, but, you know, so I, I, I thought that uh, part of this was about making sure that we didn't have dangerous back alley abortions. I mean, the mantra from Bill Clinton. Legal and rare. Yeah, yeah. But that seems to have gone out the window. Oh, there, there seems to be next to nothing in this bill that would provide for the safety of women. Other than trusting your doctor. Trusting Dr. Dr. Schindler. The same doctors that overprescribed uh, opiates um, in the late 90s for a number of reasons, some, some of which were financial, mm-hmm. some of which were actually, I think, their empathy got the best of them because they saw people in pain, they were prescribing to take care of it. But these are human beings and... Uh, we know that there were parts of the medical community here in Maine that would not be with us on this issue, but did not like the bill because of the lack of, of guidance. They want guidance, too, because they don't want to be sued. And if you don't know what the rules are, then you're actually very vulnerable to lawsuits. So I, I don't think it's it's an exaggeration to say that if LD 6, uh, 1619 passes in its current form, Maine will have the most radical abortion laws, period. Yeah, we may have peers, but there will be no one with a more liberal abortion law. Do you think that that is going to create abortion tourism where uh, people, for whatever their circumstances, are going to try to come into Maine? Because one of the things that, I mean, and you see it in the the pro-abortion newspapers like the Bangor Daily News, you know, they like to say, well, these are rare. You know, there were no no abortions past, uh, you know, 24 weeks in 2021 in Maine. Um, and that's true. They are, they are glad because they are there rare. are very few doctors that are willing to perform that procedure in our state. Thank God. So, but does this have, does this law have the poten- potential to change that by making Maine an outlier, by making Maine a place where an abortion clinic operator like Curtis Boyd, who is, uh, Dr. Shannon Carr's boss at the time when she was working in New Mexico, he's abortion royalty, mm. um, been doing it since the seventies, quite a legacy he's left behind. But are we are we putting Maine on the map as a place where, you know, if you're looking to make some money in the abortion business, uh, do you want to set up in Maine? I don't think there's any question because we're an outlier, so there's going to be very few people. It'll be one of the few places where it can be done. And they've changed the law also in 1619 and some other laws that um, would allow someone coming in from like a state like Alabama, uh, not just the client where that would not be allowed, but also the practitioner. So if, if someone is practicing uh, in another state, they have removed or so far lowered um, the ability to sue someone for malpractice or anything like that. They are begging, basically, uh, for us to become an abortion uh, destination. No question in our mind. So this is not just talking about Maine babies and Maine doctors. It is talking about a, a, a national gate uh, toward our state. And, you know, the relevance of Dr. Shannon Carr to this conversation again, because she uh, traveled to a clinic in Texas owned by the same guy mm. so, uh, often to, to do the same exact thing. Um, you know, 
I, uh, I have to, uh, play a clip, another clip that, uh, we found. Um, this is a, a clip from, uh, Representative Sally Clucci from Bodenham. Um, she. Performing abortions. I'll edit that out. Uh, Sally Clucci is one of the co-sponsors of LD 1619. Correct. Uh, she was, she was with all the Democrats, uh, on the stairs at the state house when they introduced it, but. That very same day, uh, Sally also happened to take a very curious position on the Inland Fisheries and Wildlife Committee about the kind of respect we ought to owe uh, coyotes after they've been shot. You don't have to eat it or use its hide. You can just bury it respectfully or you could compost it or something. My goal is to make sure that the coyotes are disposed of in, okay. in a way that that's that's. That's respectful. Yeah. It's a life regardless of what, what sort of value people put on it. You know, they, they look a lot like dogs as, you know, and, and that's kind of distressing for people who come across them. So those comments strike me as pointing towards a remarkable cognitive dissonance on the left where you have this overwhelming compassion for coyotes because they look like dogs and a life is a life is precious. It's, yeah, is it all life? We don't get to determine the value, right? It's you're, you're, valuable whether you value it or not. Yeah. You know what a fetus kind of looks like? Yeah. That looks like a person. <laughs> kind of. And, and, you know, as you know, Steve, the, the mission of the Christian Civic League is to bring a biblical perspective to public policy. We're not, in, we are not, you know, in any way forcing our morality on somebody. We're making the case for, for the benefits of that morality. Every law is going to have some morality. And she's right, by the way. You know, I'm not saying that law is right, but... The Bible tells us that every life is precious. Yeah, you don't want to be, you don't want to be wasteful. Don't, don't turn over nests with, that have eggs in them and things like that. You know, the Bible talks about things like God knows when a sparrow falls. So, the, and we do love our pets. So that's true. It's precious. And I hope we don't have wanton waste of, of animals and things like that. So that's not, you know, it's, it's a bit of extreme, but the, the principle of what she's saying is true. But you're, you call it cognitive uh, dissonance. I call it spiritual blindness to, to the what is so obvious and hypocritical and inconsistent is, you know, absolutely uh, uh, contrary to the biblical teaching that every human being that's ever existed upon conception bears the image of the creator. And it is the creator that has deemed the value of every human being, not other human beings. When other human beings do that, it does not well, it does not end well historically. And so, regardless of the color of their skin, as you said, the size of their bank account, what country they're born in, how many chromosomes they have, God has determined their value. Matter of fact, how did he determine? By sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to be redeemed, because every human being has value and is redeemable. And that is that is the biblical perspective. We believe that a society or a culture that embraces that is a better society. I'll give you an example of what it's like when human beings put assign value to unborn life. And I'll bring it back to Dr. Shannon Carr again, because the abortion clinic that she was working for had a special arrangement with the, with the University of New Mexico. And that arrangement involved providing leftover baby parts mm. to the hospital for research. And they later found that some of those, uh, those, those baby parts were ending up, uh, at labs, some for-profit labs. Cha-ching. All across the United States. So 
We're very concerned, says Sally Clucci, with the proper disposal of a dead coyote. Is there anything in LD 1619 or anything in Maine law that would prevent late-term abortions in Maine from contributing to fetal research at, say, Jackson Labs in Bar Harbor or any laboratory? Uh, is there anything that says this is these are the protocols you have to follow uh, to, to dispose baby parts because we there is a value for them? Yeah, we, we tried, actually. Uh, Searway, uh, I, I can't remember if he was in the Senate at the time or whether he was in the House, uh, Scott Searway, talked about um, what you could or couldn't do with the remains of either miscarriages or unborn babies and that type of thing. And we it's failed. So anytime we try to replicate or equate value to the as the, the fetus um, from our side, it's put down as an attempt to restrict re- reproductive rights. Okay. But of course they but they can uh, do it and cash cash in on it. Um, you know, so it, it is very frustrating. As a matter of fact, I remember the day that uh, Searway's bill failed in the Judiciary Committee was the same day uh, that his his bill would have at least kept these remains from being thrown on in the garbage, you know, somewhere in a dump. Oh, they won't be. But well, but I'm just saying. <laughs> but, but and sometimes they are, unfortunately. Yeah. So, but uh, but it also they passed a law that said you couldn't put balloons in in the dump. You know, for environmental reasons. So it's just, as you say, that 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 cognitive dissonance is just mind blowing. So again, if this if this passes, uh, abortion clinics will be not only paid by, uh, in some instances, taxpayer dollars. Sure. They'll also be able to turn around and take, say, a, a harvest a 26 week old uh, baby's heart or brain and sell, or brain, whatever the laboratory orders. Actually, is the way it was working in in Albuquerque with Dr. Shannon Carr. They would tell the clinic what age and what body part they were looking for uh, before they received it. Um, I guess where, where do you, where do you go from here? Is there, is there, is there a part of you that feels like um, this proposal is so extreme that what playing the long game as the left is good at, um, they're trying to ensure that in future election cycles, uh, abortion, life choice, reproductive freedom, whatever you want to call it, uh, becomes this wedge issue that they can use, which they've used effectively, which they used effectively last year. Well, we had that discussion today in, in a leadership meeting um, because I don't have to consider that necessarily because I'm an ideologue. You know? Oh, yeah, of course. So, but, but politicians do have to consider that. Not that they're compromising, but they'd be foolish not to consider it. But again, this particular issue, I think, goes beyond that. Because I, I don't think this is a winning issue. I don't think 1619 is a wish, winning issue for anybody. Certainly the mothers and the children. I mean, with uh, a with a with a fair press, correct? You might be right with a with a press that articulated an an accurate political reality for readers, voters, viewers. And that's why I know. I hope it doesn't sound like a platitude, but you know, Steve, I've said since you got back, I'm I'm so glad you're here. And, 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 and I'm glad you're back in the state uh, where you belong. And uh, just really, uh, I encourage folks, you know, I, I make no bones about it, whether it's, you know, um, the Lions Defense, uh, Lions, Lions Defending Freedom or, awesome or all those or, you know, Family Research Council. But, you know, I encourage your listeners, uh, we need to support organizations and entities uh, like yours because there is such a, a, a lack of having a beacon of, of light on issues like that. So we, we're, we're thankful that you're doing that. I do think that there's... 
there is, uh, I don't know, uh, Victor Davis Hanson in a recent column said, uh, talked about, uh, you know, the, uh, the sleeping dragon of American conservatism having woken up, uh, you know, the point being that conservatives have kind of been asleep for a few decades, right. tending to their businesses, running their lives. They've kind of just said, hmm, I don't need to be involved in the political process. What can I do about it? Um, but the, the, the transgender issue in schools, it was never, an, it was never an issue until they started making it about kids. Right. Uh, but this has kind of tapped a vein where they've, they've crossed a threshold and now conservatives are waking up. And you're seeing that in Maine with school board meetings that used to have no one attending them. Now there's 50, 100 people out there saying, Hey, well, why are you trying to give porn to little kids? Um, do you, do you think that there's going to be, uh, a, a backlash? Uh, against some of the things that have happened over the last two, four years? Because it does seem like the I do. floodgates opened up for left-wing policies in the state of Maine. I think they've overreached. And and I think that, um, again, from the faith community, we, we you, you have the obligation of advocating for your right as a parent or what you think is detrimental to society. Um, and so I always tell individuals, if you're going to step into a school meeting or something like that, tell the truth. Uh, try to do it graciously as possible and you're not obligated to respond in kind or anything like that. I think if we can do it, Steve, factually and fairly, um, and, and persistently, uh, you use the term conservative. Um, I, I think that it, it's, it's going beyond that, but certainly within that realm. I, I well, there's not much that. left, there's not much left to conserve. Yeah, that's, that's a good, <laughs> good point. But I, I do believe that. I, you know, I've been doing this 13 years. You know, I was a music director and I was in education before that. So I can't look back on like, well, what was going on in the 80s and the 90s? But uh, I've never seen it at this level. And, uh, and frankly, even within my circles, I, I see pastors now that are incredibly community minded, you know, not, not flag waving, you know, uh, blowtorch guys, which I appreciate them too, but the guys, the guys like five years ago who yeah. said, well, no, politics doesn't right. come from the pulpit. They're, and they're now seeing the necessity of engaging the culture for, for the love of their neighbor. Yeah. You know, not just for their own pur- purposes. So I guess what do you think is how, how, sh- what, what would the ideal policy when it comes to, uh, transgenderism, gender dysphoria, uh, what would that look like and how do you handle that in schools? And I know that's a big question. Um, but you know, that you clearly, you have, uh, the intersex category that they kind of tag on as an afterthought. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a real like biological thing where you're born with mixed sex organs. So clearly there's some kind of accommodation that needs to be made for people who don't fit fairly into the male or female category. But it also seems like, you know, I mean, the flags that they've got up down in Hollowell were invented about a cup of coffee ago by somebody on Reddit. And they throw it up there, and now this is going to be like it's a well-established uh, community symbol. Mm. And the flag is going to change tomorrow. A year from now, it's going, to, it's going to be different. Yeah. And you know, the, the, so it's a moving target, and it's just stuff that the, you know a couple of people on the internet are making up. But it's it's now in our schools, and they were having to learn it like it's you know history of you know medieval history or something. Well, I think we're going to look back on this time and say, what the heck were we thinking? I really do, especially when you consider the medical and surgical aspects of this uh, for minors. When, when, the, when the statistics show that if you just leave these kids alone and let them get through with it, the vast majority of them, when they hit 25, 26-year-olds, actually go back to their biological sex. So I don't know what the right particular policy is, but that policy has got to be based upon fact. It's got to be based upon data. 
Mm-hmm. And that's why we see countries like Sweden turning away from this for minors. You know, adults. All, you know, the Scandinavian yeah, countries, exactly. uh, which Denmark, are, Spain, We're leading the way for progressives on climate change and health care and, you know, things like that. So why all of a sudden do we see them as being unfair? They're, they're not being unfair. They're, they're following, their, their policy, they made a mistake. And they're, and, they're making a pragmatic and, decision. And, and now they're changing yeah. back about what's best for kids. I, I think that's what's going to happen. I hope that's what's going to happen. And and the other part of this is we've got to be able to differentiate between a social contagion and a true medical situation. Yeah, I mean, I think that's 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 the the nut of the the debate because there are people on the left who don't want to acknowledge social contagion. Well, like, I mean, during the public hearing, um, Eric Brakey asked. Mary Bonato, Mary's a friend of mine, and I really appreciate Mary, and I know she's doing what she thinks is right, and she's trying to be fair and, and compassionate. But when Eric asked, asked what causes this, you know, he was basically rebuffed for saying, what, what do you mean what causes this? This is a naturally occurring thing. Well, whether it's natural or whether it is dysfunctional, that we just don't know the answer to that. We know what people want it to be. We know what people proclaim it to be. But clinically, we don't know the answer to that. And so policy really cannot be inflexible when we don't have concrete clinical answers for that. The other aspect of that, and this again touches on the contagion, is look at the numbers. You mentioned um, people that are actually born, you know, with both sex organs or they're not clear. You're talking about point zero 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 one. Oh yes, yeah. Of the population, yeah. and so we're making these policy decisions based upon something that really is a statistical anomaly. So we're not saying it doesn't exist, but we're making policy based upon the contagion rather than the actual medical issue. And, and for so- sure. And, and, and there's kind of a positive feedback loop there, too, because if you look at the main integrated youth health survey data where, I mean, you know, f- five, six years ago, they started asking questions about these kind of things. You've seen just a, a drastic increase in the number of 32 percent of high school yeah. kids who say that they are um, LGBTQI. I don't forget what the new categories are or, or non on the survey. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I've seen it. Yeah. So. And, and it's being driven primarily by young women who say that they're bisexual, right. which is which is uh, it's a little unusual for a few reasons. But you would expect that. Um, I guess the, the the liberal point of view, as far as I can empathize with it, is that. The reason why you're seeing an increase in these identity expressions in Maine high school kids, far more than other states or even other Anglo nations, is because um, our teachers and our school system are so progressive and tolerant that these latent attitudes that were always there, or latent identities that were already always there, are finally able to express themselves. So by that standard, the more children who identify as LGBTQ in Maine schools the better our schools are because they're more tolerant and progressive because there's no social contagion. This is all just naturally occurring. So we need to do everything we can to get those, those identifications as high as possible. And, and then, and then the policymakers look at that 30%, 35%, that number, whatever it is and say, well, Jesus is even more important than we thought it was. And they make policies that are going to feed back in. And, and that's why I say that as I've stood before the committee, I, I've, I've said this in front of the judiciary committee. I disagree with you on how you're handling what you see as a perceived problem. I see problems too. I see young people struggling with. There's no question. I mean, something's going on in our society. But I know that many of them, there's some bad actors, but they're not trying to destroy America. They're not trying to destroy the the nuclear family or anything like that. They're acting on their sense of fairness and their and 
compassion too. And that's why it's important for this debate and these discussions to be so, so we're not just screaming at each other. And again, even be able to look at something like Sweden or something like that without it being, you know, some type of right wing, you know, as they would say, hate, hate, um, uh, inspired action as opposed to the same common commitment to what's fair and what's compassionate. So, I mean, you mentioned you've been doing this for 13 years. How, through that time, how have you seen the reaction that you get as, I mean, you're here in Augusta all the time. You are the, the ambassador for, um, Christianity, not like the Council of Churches Christianity, like real Christianity. You're the ambassador for Christianity in Augusta. And you talk with Democrat lawmakers and you talk with them, uh, left, left leaning lobbyists. Has the reaction that you get when you say, Hey, I would like to talk with you about, you know, a, a Christian biblical perspective about this particular policy issue. Has it changed over those years? Because it feels like the conversation that society has around these issues has changed hugely, even in just five years. Conceptually, it's changed, no question. Um, you know, you're aware that in times past, um, they talk about Tip O'Neill and, you know, Reagan, <coughs> excuse me, you know, having a drink afterwards, even mm-hmm. though they try to eat each other's brains out, you know, during the day. Um that certainly has evaporated. And that's not even necessarily a faith issue or a biblical issue. It's just the, 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 just the temperature of the debate. Um, and we are becoming a polarized country. And so that, that whether the politics is causing that or whether it's reflecting what's going on, you know, th- those are things to say. So, so part of the answer is it is the, in, there are greater obstacles to overcome to have those type of conversations. However, the answer to that is being relational and making every attempt. Uh, first of all, make sure your life is consistent, you know, to your values and that I just don't go off half cocked like I, which is my nature. I'm a fighter, you know, um, to make sure that make sure that whatever I say is fair and accurate, even if they don't agree with it. And I, I will say this and I hope this doesn't sound Pollyannish, but I mean, just uh, one of the pastors that helps me and, and is not necessarily involved in policy stuff, but just simply trying to be there and relate to and thank people for the public service and share with them the biblical per- perspective on things like life and poverty and addiction and you know all those things that the Bible speaks to that even like maybe the left maybe puts a higher value or appears to on, on some of those things. We're actually having some progress on that, but it takes time uh, because there are so many obstacles and because of the environment that we're in. Well, there's two more things I want to get. Uh, I want to talk with you about, and then we can run because the work session is about to start. Although it'll probably be about uh, a half hour late. They usually are. Um, there's there's two legal issues developing, and I know you're familiar with both of them. Uh, one is in the Herman School System, uh, where uh, Matt Joya, I believe, Matt Joya, He's a pastor of a church there that was looking to expand. Well, the church was growing. They needed a bigger space. They reached out to the Herman Auditorium, to uh, the Herman School System, to see if they could rent their gymnasium or auditorium there. And the response that they got was an email from Chris McLaughlin, uh, I guess, Inquisition. I don't know if that's a fair word to use here, but uh, McLaughlin effectively said, I'd like to figure out what these uh, evangelical Christians' views are on um, uh, gender, drugs for climate children, change, climate change, change, and abortion. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, reading between the lines, obviously, you don't even have to read that far between the lines. What he was saying is, unless this is a church that agrees with me about abortion, transgenderism, and climate change, I don't think I'm going to sign off on this, which... Might be called discrimination. Yeah, that looks like pretty cut-and-dry discrimination. And, and fortunately, Matt, uh, you know, we talked about... Uh, 
pastors who have um, tried to remain neutral politically or still on the sidelines. Right. Matt doesn't seem to be one of those pastors. See, I don't even see this as politics, though. You know, really. Oh yeah, I mean, well, this is your, this is, this is, this is just your rights. Exactly, your your human rights. And he, he has a mission to try to reach the community with, with the gospel. And so, living, if he lived in China, it'd be different. But he lives in the United States, and all, you know, good and perfect things come from above. You know, we're not guaranteed those rights, but we're, we are obligated to be stewards of those rights. And that's what I appreciate about Matt. Matt's not looking for a fight, uh, but Matt is saying, "Good night." We have taxpaying people from Herman that attend our church. And we are asking something that other people are being allowed to do. Uh, so as you mentioned, one of the uh, town committee or school committee, people didn't reach out to him uh, directly. I actually went to the, to the superintendent, as I understand that email that you're referencing. And uh, boy, that's a smoking gun. And so I know they have, um, they're pursuing a lawsuit. Hopefully it doesn't come to that. Hopefully Herman will come to their senses and recognize it, this is this is a slam dunk. Uh, this is like this would be a textbook example of religious discrimination. And whether you'd win on the lower level or not, uh, Herman is going to be paying thousands and thousands of dollars in a lawsuit that they will not win. Um, mm-hmm. and They've got some experience with that. Yeah, they do. As a matter of fact, <laughs> Unfor- so, unfortunately, though, it's <laughs> never it's never Chris McLaughlin who pays for that. It's no, never it's, it's never a school official, people. you know. So you're yeah. you you can feel good about having stood up for yourself and won, and won that lawsuit, but Ultimately, it's your neighbors who are paying for that in the form of increased property taxes. Yeah, they were allowed to basically rent one month at a time, which you can't do. That. You can't, you can't plan for Easter. Exactly. You can't plan. So you, that's <laughs> and that is and other groups were allowed to do it like for six months or whatever. So the they drag 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 queen story hour. I'm sure could get a, a year long contract if they wanted to. So yeah, uh, and I, I I appreciate you mention Pastor Matt and the Pines Church because I really think they're doing it right. They're they're still being gracious. And hopefully maybe letters going back and forth, some, you know, that the town will, or the school will recognize that and amiably, amiably be able to, um, do the good work that that church does in the community. Well, Matt's story is awesome having come here from Colorado, I believe, right. and picked Maine because of the, the, uh, lack of religiosity in the state and really a guy who was just like, I want to go where things are, things are the worst for yeah, some reason. I've got some in church there and it's yeah. a, it's a happening. Yeah. So I, I want to get him on the podcast. So if he's listening, Matt, I'd like to have you on. Uh, but the other, the other lawsuit is, um, involves, uh, uh, Bangor Christian School. And I'm, I'm less familiar with that, with the intricacies of that one, but they actually won, uh, a pretty significant victory in, in the Supreme Court. In the Supreme Court. Carson versus Macon. And the, uh, Maine Department of Education decided, uh, to basically say, screw you, Supreme Court. Uh, so it's really the AG, but I'm sure the, yeah. the Department of Education was applauding them. Uh, yeah, they basically said, yeah, you won. Um, but so what were the, it was about, um, uh, school funding for, uh, funding for Christian right. schools. Right? Tuition towns that don't have a high school historically, you know, for a long time, under 50 years have allowed parents to attend schools. And until 1982, all schools, whether they were sectarian or not, were allowed to participate in the program as long as they met the criteria of like, Safety and, you know, those type of things. 18, 1982, there was an erroneous decision, uh, in the main Supreme Court that finally got overturned, uh, in 2021, I believe, maybe 2022. But, uh, I was so thankful to be there. David Carson, a former student of mine when I was a principal of Bangor Christian, his daughter, Olivia, uh, was the one that was being denied tuition, uh, in the town of Glenburn, which is a tuition town. That case was won. 
Um, it was a, a really good case. But then uh, uh, the attorney general in Maine just said that um, we, we're not going to abide by that. And we're going to uh, insist that schools that participate in, even though they may be accredited, which uh, is the right now the platform or the, or the level that everybody has to be if they're going to participate that. But if you're accredited, but you are an, a sectarian or a religious school, then uh, you have to abide by the Maine Human Rights Commission. Which means, which is a totally left-wing document. Absolutely. Right? I mean, it, which it, it means does it, you, it does nothing to do with human rights. So a sectarian school could not hire individuals based upon their religious values. And so, um, if a school said that, um, you know, if it's a Catholic school and you want your staff to be Catholic, you can do that. Well, this is a, I mean, this is exactly what what happened at Bowdoin College. Only it's Bowdoin's a private institution, but they basically said to the Bowdoin Christian Fellowship, "You're not allowed to have uh, Christian leaders." Leadership, right? Which, you know, unfortunately they've dealt with it by just moving off campus, but right. it's a little bit different when, uh, it's a, it's, uh, you know, a, a government run program like that. So, so, Bangor, so what's the, what's the status now? So Bango Christian, which is a ministry of Cross Point Church, um, did make the decision and they very thoughtfully, prayerfully, because they understood that it's not every day that you sue the state, but they are suing the state basically upon the merits of the victory in the Supreme Court and the Carson versus Macon. And so right now they're seeking an injunction um, so that parents from tuition towns could access mm-hmm. the tuition money. And then, of course, there would be the actual trial. Um, so we're hoping to hear it's First Liberty is the um, firm that is representing them. And they are also the ones that won the case in the Supreme mm-hmm. Court. And so we're, we're watching that. It's something that, you know, that's where I go to church, Steve. That's where I used to be the principal, you know, for years. So I've very been very involved with that since the 90s in that, that whole concept as far as the discrimination against uh, parents that want to seek sectarian education and still be able to get tuition. But with that being said, um, you know, uh, there it's it's a long haul. You know, it takes years to do this. But I, I have been, when asked and advised on the situation, that I'm, I'm thankful that people like Matt and that the, the, the board – at Cross Point Church and Bangor Christian is standing up and saying, you know, this isn't just about us. It's other people's rights are being taken away. Uh, where can people go if they want to find out more about the Christian Civic League of Maine? Sure. Our website is cclmaine, with an E, dot org, cclmaine.org. That is really the best place to go. Um, and one thing that we really encourage people to do when they go to our homepage is to click on to receive our Thursday morning email blast to keep you uh, informed on hopefully where keep you informed and inspired to, to be advocates for, for God's truth. And you guys are on social media too. We are Facebook, we have Twitter. Facebook, Twitter, the whole, you look at, you look at Christian civic league and um, you, you'll, you'll find us, Mike uh, McClellan, our policy director does a, a, he does, we give a little more freedom on Twitter, you know, yeah. to be a little edgier. So if, if you're an addict, you know, for political stuff, Mike's your guy and Twitter's probably the place to go on that. And you guys are 501c3? Both actually. Okay. So the Christian Civic League is our 501c4 that allows us to lobby and campaign. And the 501c3 is the Christian Education League. And that's when I was mentioning about dealing with legislators mm-hmm. or doing our, like a nonpartisan voter guides and, and so on. That's under the Christian Education League. Okay. And, uh, speak up for life. It's speakupforlife.org, right? Dot com. Dot com. Yep. Speakupforlife.com. And, and please, and everyone on social media. Absolutely. Speakupforlife.com, especially to, to focus in on the wonderful work that, that, and the, we're just so thankful to partner with him on defeating LD1619.
and it seems like you guys had a uh, a spectacular time at the state house that night. Was it was you know, we had church. a peaceful demonstration? <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, it was a it was it seemed like a, uh, obviously it was a peaceful demonstration. It's not it's not uh, common that you can get that many people together for a divisive political issue for right. that long a period of time. And the most trouble you get is a little uh, guitar guitar playing, maybe <laughs> praying too loud. Uh, but thank you, Carol Conley, uh, thank you, for, for joining me for this podcast. And I guess we'll head over to the state house now. Sounds good. All right.